0: Amen. Good morning, church. So good to see you today. I want to welcome all of you who are joining us online. Thank you for participating and being a part of our gathering. And for all of you who are here in person, it's great to see you. It's good to see friends. Uh, I love seeing at least half your faces today. It's wonderful. Uh, we're in a series, a nine-week series in the Book of First Peter. You can be opening your Bibles to First Peter right now. We have uh, called this series "Resident Strangers." What it means to be strangers in a world, which is not just a word Peter uses multiple times in First Peter, but became a defining marker for the church. At a hundred years after Peter wrote this book, there are people and leaders of some of the provinces who referred to Christians as strangers in the world. Like they knew that their their allegiance was to another kingdom and they're living out life in this world as strangers. I, I'm sure you've had times in your life lives when you've been places where uh, you have felt like a stranger. You didn't fit in. People spoke another language. You didn't know really how to interact with anything around you. As we reflect back on 2020, years from now, we're gonna reflect back, and strange may be a word we reflect back on. Years from now, we're gonna look back and think, man, 2020 was such a, a strange year. There are times I've been in strange places where I felt like I, I didn't fit, like when I traveled to Zambia or Ethiopia, or when I visit an Ikea, where I walk in and I'm like, Good stuff here, I kind of like what's going on, but this scares me. Like I have to prepare my heart and mind before I step into an Ikea, mainly because I wanna try to get out before it's bedtime. Uh, There's just times we're in places that are strange. When I traveled up to Barrow, Alaska back in 2014, the northernmost city in the United States where it was negative 65 wind chill, I felt more at home like I was in the United States when I was in Zambia than I did in Barrow because there was nothing familiar at all. At least in Zambia, there was a McDonald's and a Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I'm sure there are times where you've been places where you have felt strange. In 1 Peter 2, verse 11 and 12, which I I think is probably the thesis of 1 Peter, where he builds his whole book on on this argument and this statement. In 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, it says this, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers... And as I've talked about this for a few weeks, I don't think Peter's talking about strangers as if there's a disconnection from God, like a vertical disconnection. It's not a statement about this world's not my home, I'm just passing through. Peter wants the church to be fully engaged in the time they were living in. So it's not about vertical separation as much as it is about horizontal challenges. He's writing to people in different provinces and there's social pressure and economic consequences that are happening because these people are giving their lives to Jesus. And he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And if you're taking notes today, I want you to highlight verse 12 because I think verse 12 lays the foundation for the argument that Peter makes for the rest of chapter 2 into chapter 3. And it's a life committed to goodness. Peter's going to talk about relationships, and in each one of these relationships Peter talks about, he's asking people, he's encouraging, equipping people to commit yourself to a life of goodness. And here's what he says in verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans. That you don't just live good lives among those who were close to you, You live good lives among those who are outside the religious community. You live good lives among those who are outside your social network. So that when they see you, that they know there's something happening in you that is good. It's that outsiders will be able to see that there's something good in you. And the way he says it, though they accuse you of doing wrong, that they may see your good deeds. And that they will glorify God on the day he visits us. Because of the good deeds that are inside of you. Now, here in a few verses at the very end of chapter 2, Peter's going to take four verses where he summarizes what Jesus has accomplished through his sacrifice. And when Peter does this, he's quoting from places in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53. He's paraphrasing some places in the Old Testament. And he pauses... And what he's saying in chapter 2 to highlight the work of Jesus. In verse 22 of chapter 2, it says this. "He, He, Jesus, committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was accused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. He highlights the work of Jesus by highlighting the sacrifice, by highlighting how Jesus did not return violence when violence came upon him. It was an ethic of nonviolence. He highlights the work of Jesus as a way to say, even when it comes to conversion, conversion in Christianity, it's not conversion by force, it's conversion by invitation. This is what Jesus has done for you, and Jesus invites all people to respond to this. Now, when Peter pauses for just a few verses to highlight the work of Jesus, why does he do it? Why does he pause in the middle of his letter, like right in the middle of this letter? It's five chapters long, right in the middle of it. He pauses to highlight what Jesus has done, the sacrifice and what Jesus accomplished, how Jesus took on the sins of the world. Why does, why does Peter do it? Is this, is this an attempt on Peter's part to try to encourage people with evangelistic fervor, like this is what Jesus has done for you and, and you need to share this with the world? That, that may be part of it. Is this for Peter to highlight the grace of God that has come for us, has come to us, not because of of merit or because we deserve it, but because of what Jesus has accomplished. And though there may be truths to all of that, I think the reason Peter pauses to highlight the work of Jesus is because of this. One word. It's because of relationships. Which sounds a little strange. But... Peter's in the middle, right in the middle of highlighting specific relationships in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 and right in the middle of highlighting these relationships he pauses to talk about what Jesus has accomplished through his sacrifice. What Peter wants the church to know is the sacrifice of Jesus doesn't just set you right with God it is meant to set people right with each other. So, what Peter does in chapter 2 Beginning of verse 12, and you see it on the screen. You'll see it on your screen if you're watching online. In verse 12, I think he lays a foundation for the argument he's about to build, which is as Christians, you were called by God to a life of goodness. In verse 13 through 16 or 13 through 17, Peter highlights and he talks to citizens. That's everybody, all people who are citizens of the Roman Empire and citizens of a country. There's a word for you. And then Peter's going to talk to slaves and not just any slaves. He's talking to household slaves. And then after that, Peter's going to talk to not just wives. He's going to talk to wives of unbelieving husbands. It's not just all wives. It's not just all women. It's wives of unbelieving husbands. And then Peter's going to spend one verse talking about husbands. And maybe it's because husbands didn't need a strong word from Peter. Or maybe it's because all Peter could speak into the life of husbands was something that came in the form of a tweet. Because it's all they could take the time to understand. But these are the specific relationships Peter's going to address. Which means there were specific relationships that had challenges in them. And Peter's going to speak to them. Peter was all for relationships Peter liked relationships. We know Peter had a relationship with Jesus. He had a relationship with the other apostles. We know Peter was married. Early on in Jesus' life, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into a house, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And we know Peter has a mother-in-law, and you can't have a mother-in-law unless you're married. So Peter has a mother-in-law, and apparently he loved her enough that he wanted Jesus to heal her. If he didn't love her enough, he wouldn't have introduced Jesus to the mother-in-law. He would have just tried to let the fever run its course, right? Which is what some of you may want to do with your in-laws. I'm just joking. We all love our in-laws. But he he had Jesus. He wanted Jesus to heal his mother-in-law. He had all these relationships. He was for relationships. And, And most importantly, Peter was for relationships in and through the church, no matter what. Now, Peter also knew he was writing to people who lived in a time where the head of the household, the man of the household, made decisions for the entire household, for the wife, the children, household slaves. Whatever the head of the household wanted to do, everybody else just fell in line. Whoever the gods were that the head of the household allowed in the house, everyone else was expected to follow and worship those gods. If the head of the household wanted to drop Netflix and Amazon Prime for a season, everyone else just fell in line. If the head of the household wanted to become vegan for a season, everyone else would just fall in line. That's just how it worked. Yet the church became a movement that had women who were married to unbelieving husbands who were a part of it, who had household slaves who were a part of it. The church became a movement that was doing something that no other institution or organization in the world was able to do. So Peter takes time to speak to some specific relationships, and in each one there's a word or a phrase that may drive some of you nuts because it's not a word or phrase we use a lot, but a word and a phrase he uses for each one of these, and it's the word submit. Submit to, and then he's going to fill in the blank. And some of your versions it may have be subject to or accept thee or defer to. And it's a word he comes back to later on in chapter 5 when he talks to the younger generation of this is what you do to the elders in the church. To those who are older than you, you submit to the wisdom and experiences of those who are older than you. But to begin with, he speaks into these, these very specific people. And here's a phrase I want to come back to multiple times in each one of these relationships, and it's this. Here's what, Peter, here's what he's trying to do. Here's how God is using Peter to equip the churches, and it's this. He wants to help equip them to interact publicly and socially while maintaining Christian integrity. So the message to the church isn't to disengage from the world so you can live a life of holiness. It's to interact and to engage publicly and socially while maintaining Christian integrity. Because as I've said multiple times, and as my mentor reminds me once a year, that if the price is right, everyone's character and integrity can be for sale. And what Peter wants is for people to count the cost of following Jesus enough that no matter what the price is, you will never sell out, you will never sell your soul to anything other than the kingdom of God and the greatness of Jesus. So in verse 13, what Peter does, he begins speaking to all citizens, and what he says is this, For the Lord's sake, submit to the authority of every human institution, Whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors, as sent by him, sent by God, to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Your behavior, Peter's writing, your behavior... Your behavior in the world is not so that other people like you, and it's not to appease other people, it's to please God. And as Peter is writing to these churches, he wants there to be this evangelistic fervor that you live your life in a way where people outside the religious community and outside of your community will see your good deeds. Not just the message that comes from your mouth, but they will see that there is something inside of you that is different. It will become a form of evangelism. And what Peter's also writing is he's writing to all these citizens represented in the churches he's writing to is reminding them that there are a lot of people out there who think of you as their enemy. And though other people may think of you as their enemy, the church doesn't think of other people as our enemy. Peter's referencing, and multiple times he heard Jesus teach about, for you, you love enemies. You love them. All the way to the cross, Jesus modeled this. Now, Peter struggled with this. A time when somebody we have a story where someone when they came to to arrest Jesus Peter swung a, sw- a sword and like chopped off a dude's ear and Jesus put the ear back on and you know Peter wasn't swinging at a dude's ear he's swinging to take off a dude's neck right and Jesus taught him even taught Peter like hey we love enemies we don't tolerate enemies we don't we don't tolerate people I had a friend yesterday, he told me, when it comes to the kingdom of God, Jesus taught us to love enemies. We tolerate too many people. And he said, he said, what we do, we tolerate mosquitoes in the summertime. We tolerate pests. We tolerate occasional traffic. We are not called by God to tolerate people. You love people. So as Peter's reminding them of this, he's reminding these citizens, even household servants, even wives who are married to unbelieving husbands, that in Jesus you've been set free. And your freedom is for you to bring God glory. And your freedom should never be an excuse for you to mistreat anybody, even if you're being mistreated. Peter talks to people about civic duty. Like you have civic duty and civic responsibility, but all civic duty has a certain boundary that we're never asked to cross as the people of God. Which means our allegiance is never given to any kingdom but the kingdom of God. And the way Peter talks about this is in verse 17. He has four short little phrases that go like this is that you honor and you respect everyone. You love the family of believers. You fear God and God alone and you honor and you respect the emperor. Now everyone else in those times, they would have said certain things like this, but they also would have added to that that you worship the emperor. And Peter and Paul always stop short of that. So what they say in the the encouragement in chapter 2 verse 17 is, you honor and you respect everyone, even when it's hard. You love the family of believers. You fear only God. And you honor and you respect the emperor. And then Peter's going to address household servants, household slaves. And what he says is this in verse 18. Slaves, submit to the authority of your masters with all deference, Not only those who were kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. For... Is a, it, for it is a credit to you, and, and I love some of your versions that talk about a grace. Like, it is grace to you. If being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps." Here's the good problem in the provinces and these churches that Peter's writing to. The good problem is it sure does sound like there are a lot of household slaves in the church. That the church was a place where household slaves and servants had a voice and a place. Christianity for 2,000 years has been good news to the desperate It has been good news to those who struggle to find worth or purpose in the world. The church is a place that announces and lives out good news. It is good news to all people. Those who feel like they have no voice at any table are able to come to the church where they are not treated as second-class citizens, but they are welcomed as full members of the body of Christ. Now for Peter, as he writes to them, Peter doesn't go after the system of the world. And this is one of the challenges that we've had. Because people have used the Bible to defend slavery in the past and people have used the Bible to defend segregation because the New Testament doesn't seem to take a strong stance against the system of slavery. And I think for Peter and Paul, they were living in the time where rebellion against the system didn't seem to be a viable option at all. It seemed to be a death sentence. So what they do is they try to instill in people value and worth and that when you come into the church you were welcome as a full member of God. Welcomed at the table, a voice at the table. And I can't help but imagine what some of the conversations were like when the churches in these provinces would get together because of course... Everyone there was a citizen of the Roman Empire. But then you have household servants and who knows the kind of stories that they were coming into the church with every week of emotional abuse and the challenges of trying to live out their Christian faith and in households that were surrendering to other gods. And then you have wives of unbelieving husbands who have their own stories of what it's like trying to follow Jesus in a, in a time and in, in a household where other people didn't accept or didn't like what they were doing. And and, they, and it probably felt like a celebrate recovery meeting, where everyone had a story of brokenness every single week, yet they come into the church where they're reminded of their identity and their commitment, where they had a place at the table. And then Peter speaks specifically to wives of unbelieving husbands, and he wants to do the same thing for them, is to equip them to interact publicly and socially while maintaining your Christian identity and integrity. And what he says is, wives, in the same way, submit to the authority of your husband's so that even if some of them do not obey the word they may be won over without a word by the wives conduct when they see the purity and reverence of your lives do not adorn yourselves outwardly by braiding your hair and by wearing gold ornaments or fine clothing rather let your uh, adornment by the inner self be the inner self with the lasting beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in god's sight It was in this way long ago that the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by accepting the authority of their husbands. And I think he's referencing some of the women throughout the book of Genesis of Sarah and Rebecca. And in verse 6, thus Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. This isn't like the Savior of her life. It's It's a statement of respect. You have become her daughters as long as you do what is good and never let fears alarm you. And we can read these verses in the 21st century and read some things that Paul occasionally says about women or the household. And we read it in the 21st century and it, it's, it's one of those things where some of you even listening today, you're like, I can't wait to see Peter and Paul one day in heaven because I'm going to pull them aside and I'm going to ask them about some of these things they had to say about women. But in those times, right here, in these, first, in these six verses, Peter's not, he's not trying to set women straight. I think if anything, what Peter's doing he's elevating that he believes that the power of God has entered into these wives of unbelieving husbands to make them into powerful witnesses in the world of God's faithfulness. Reminding them of the Spirit of God and the calling and the mission that is in them to make a difference in the world. Encouraging them, you're going to be in a home where there's going to be all kinds of pressure for you to pray to other gods and worship other gods, yet you're committed to the one true God and you're committed to the ways of Jesus. And this could not be easy for women in those times. But reminding them of your commitment to goodness is going to be a testimony to your unbelieving husbands that ultimately may end up leading some of them to the Lord. And then for one verse, Peter addresses the husbands. And he says, Husbands, in the same way, Show consideration for your wives in your life together, paying honor to the women as the weaker sex. And this is where we need no amens coming from the fellows in the house, all right? Since they too also are heirs of the gracious gift of God, so that nothing may hinder your prayers. This verse drives a lot of people nuts. For three months, Casey's read 1 Peter, and she's like, this whole chapter 3, verse 7 thing kind of... Like, I need, I need help. Uh, I don't like this. Weaker vessel, this is a word that shows up occasionally in the Bible, and it often refers to pottery. And I think Peter's making a statement that everyone in that culture would have believed that it was thought in those times that the female body, the physical body of a female, was weaker than the physical body of a male. And there were many who believed then that the female body is weaker and women weren't as smart as men and women weren't as good of leaders as men. And I think it was almost just a given in those times. Like, people just believed that. But if you read all of verse 7, this isn't Peter minimizing or demeaning women. If anything, it's elevating elevating women. It's reminding husbands that though they're physically weaker, they are co-heirs of the grace of God. Which means women don't have access to the throne room of God because their husbands help get them there. Women have access to the throne room of God because Jesus gets them there. And the same promise that is available for men is the same promise that's available to women, co-heirs, co-recipients of the grace of God. And, and Peter's encouraging husbands and wives, believing husbands and wives, submit to one another. Because if you don't, this could hinder your prayers. I don't think this is that God's not going to listen to you. It says if your heart is not respecting each other the way God wants you to respect each other, your heart's gonna, it's not going to be right with God. So, for a few verses, Peter addresses some specific relationships dealing with specific issues in a specific time. And the reason Peter does this is reminding people that. There's no other God but God alone. And not only that, there's no other God but God alone. And how you live this out in your relationships is please don't be a jerk about this. Like when it comes to slaves trying to live out your Christian faith in a place where other people think you're crazy for what you're doing or wives of unbelieving husbands trying to live out your faith in a home where husbands may not agree with what you're doing and the challenges that people are facing and the social pressure and economic pressure, when it comes to your freedom in Christ, don't be a jerk of how you live out your Christian faith in society. Interact publicly and socially in a way that maintains your Christian integrity. And not only that, know that your life committed to goodness is not just about the things you don't do. It's not just about the bad things you don't do. Instead, a life committed to goodness is something that everyone else is supposed to see. They should see that you are different. Your allegiance is different. How you go about living your life is different. So that ultimately people may ask, like, hey, I've noticed there's just something different in you. What is it? Which gives believers a chance to talk about our lives with God. A few years ago, there was a survey done with thousands of Americans, and it turned into a book. It turned into a book that was called, um, um, what was the name of the book? The Day America Told the Truth. So what the survey did is, is, there was a part of the survey that asked people, like, what amount of money would it take for you to do certain things? And what the survey was doing was like, what amount of money would it take for you to surrender some of your values? Now, I know as a family, Casey and the boys, sometimes we joke around and we'll be like, you know, how much money for you to eat a hot pepper or how much money would it take for you to wrestle an alligator or how much money for you to go skydiving or bungee jump off the Royal Gorge? Would you do it for a hundred dollars, $1, a thousand dollars, a million dollars? So I'm sure all of us have had these conversations before with friends or people. And what the survey did was at what point are you willing to surrender your character and your integrity and some of your values? And the survey showed that the $10 million point seemed to be the tipping point for a lot of people. 25% of the people said for $10 million, they would abandon their families. 25% of people said for $10 million, they would abandon their religion. 23% of people said for $10 million, they would take on prostitution for a short period of time. 10% of people said for $10 million, they would withhold testimony to set a murderer free. Like there was a tipping point that for so much money, everyone's character and integrity could be for sale. And what Peter's doing with these churches in those provinces, I don't think Peter's doing a thing for how much money would you surrender your integrity or sell your soul. It's that Peter wants to equip the churches to have a no matter what kind of faith, that there would be no money and no social pressure or no physical persecution pressure that could come upon you that would make you want to live any other kind of life. So don't change your confession. Don't give up on your confession. Stay true to your confession. Our identity is in Jesus. And we live out this commitment every single day of our lives. So if you're here today and you're in need of prayer... We have elders who willingly, they are here to receive you. And there'll be a room 100 right after this worship service. If you're online or if you're in person, feel free to jump on our website. We have a connect card and there are places there for you to fill out any prayer requests. If you're interested in being baptized into Christ, we would love, we, we love responding to those. So please take a moment to fill those out. Before we sing this next song, will you close your eyes and let's pray together. God, as we live in a year that is so strange, as we live in a month and over the next couple of weeks in a political season that is strange, I pray for the body of Christ that you will root our identity in Jesus. Each and every day, God, whisper to us, shout at us, invite us deeper into your presence that we will not give our allegiance to another. And I pray, God, through the work of your Holy Spirit, that you will help us to model and to live out goodness in our lives, even when it's hard. As our vision says, I pray today that you will help awaken us to the greatness of Jesus, and I don't pray that for us alone. God, today I pray that for our city leaders, state leaders, federal leaders. I pray that over President Trump. I pray that over Joe Biden, their entire teams that through the work of your power and your presence that you will awaken these men and women right here in our country, awaken them to the greatness of Jesus. We lift all of this up in the power of your name. Amen.